Welcome to the Life in Deep Ellum podcast, exploring the sacred in art, faith, and community. Well, today we have been exploring these generations that came before Christ and the families and stories and people that were part of the coming of Christ. We've talked about Joseph and Mary, and today we're going to spend some time together with Elizabeth and Mary, two mothers-to-be, and the encounter that they have. She knows before she even hears the news, Elizabeth. And how does she know? Her womb tells her. Her body, her child, the one she carries within, the baby inside her who will one day be known as John the Baptist, the scruffy, edgy, rough-around-the-edges prophet who paves the way for Jesus. But before he's that John the Baptist, he is in the womb of Elizabeth, Mary's cousin. He's attached, hemmed in, bound and held in the womb of Elizabeth. And that makes him kind of Jesus' cousin. We're in the Gospel of Luke, and I'm going to read to you a few verses from the first chapter of Luke, verse 39. If you want to, you're welcome to open your iPhone if that would help you access the scripture, or you can just let these words fall over your ears, rest on your ears. That works too. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. And why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord comes to me? The mother of her Lord. Mary hardly gets to announce her pregnancy or even create some suspense for a gender reveal. There's no suspense or anticipation. That's the really fun part for, for moms to be, right? Instead, like all stories of faith are, mystery unfolds before and beyond human imagination. And remember a few verses prior, the angel came to Mary and said, do not be afraid. And when she asks why, if you remember in our, in our memory a few weeks ago, the angel says, nothing shall be impossible with God. Nothing shall be impossible. So it seems it is somehow possible then for Elizabeth to feel her own child leap for joy just at the sound of Mary's voice. This God who comes and dwells among us, this is not your average Greco-Roman God. 
This is not a God who needs marble statues or elaborate mythological prowess to show power. No, this is the God that subverts human ideas of power showing up in the belly of a Jewish girl who is seeking comfort from her cousin. Do you hear that? How scandalous the story of this pregnancy has been so normalized. And as Daniela Coates reminded us last week, it was and probably still is a divine scandal. That the presence of God, the spirit of God broke loose among us and decided to get close to us. This defies all sorts of norms and rationale. And for probably all the other folks in the Greco-Roman culture, they would probably be confused why you'd even want your God to become flesh like you. Why would you want a God to be born in this way, in this messy human way, in the womb? Aren't gods supposed to be gods after all? Separate, apart, otherworldly, untouchable, heroic, impressive, non-human, transcendent of humanity. So what is this gospel that reaches into human wombs and connects two women bonding over morning sickness? They spent three months together, Elizabeth and Mary. That's what the scripture says, three months before she returned home to have the baby. These moms-to-be were together for three months, and I have to wonder what happened in those three months. You know, in between the dramatic angel announcements Maybe Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband, was on angel watch duty, keeping watch for these dramatic encounters with the divine, but I have a feeling most of it was pretty mundane. Did they rest together outside and watch the sun go down? Did they dream about what good trouble their boys would get into someday? Did Mary confess more of her fear Did she say to Elizabeth, I'm really scared? And did Elizabeth provide even more tender faith and comfort, saying, it's okay, I'm right here with you? Did they moan from the discomfort of pregnancy? And did they marvel at the gift they had been bestowed with? It all kind of went together. The other magnificent thing about this sisterhood, cousin friendship, was that Elizabeth isn't jealous. Wouldn't the current Hollywood version of this story surely try to add in some drama and competition between these two ladies? Maybe we could imagine a plot of a film that included Elizabeth being secretly upset that she was not picked to bear the Messiah. You know, the drama, the gossip, the backstabbing between two women, like culture likes to portray women, always against each other. 
But that's not the image of this story. That's what's so beautiful about it. I could maybe see it being an in, independent docu-series, you know, like one on Apple TV or like you have to pay extra to watch it because it's so independent. Some beautiful cinematography with them together over the course of three months. But I don't think it would be a box office hit. Because while the story of Christ and the story of Christ coming to dwell among us really is magnificent, the beauty and the power of it is that it's also in the mundane. It's the mundane moments, the everyday moments that God chose to get involved in. No marble statues or glorious temples needed. When we stop reading scripture with such urgency, terrified that the truth of God needs our constant defending, we're like flipping through the pages like, oh no, what are we going to find? <laughs> and how can we make sure that it still sounds good? That's a scary way to read scripture. But instead, the Holy Spirit invites us to soften our gaze and spend some time reading in between the lines and immersing ourselves in the story. We can relax. God doesn't need defense attorneys. God needs people to read the story and let it transform them. Think about how mundane, how ordinary these three months between Mary and Elizabeth were, and yet how marvelous and sacred. That, my friends, is the entire point of incarnation. If you hear that word incarnation a lot, here's, let me break it down. It's a big concept to wrap your head around, but it really couldn't be more simple than this. The mundane parts of our lives become majestic when God is present and at work in them. That is the good news. And it doesn't mean that we have to become more majestic to keep up. We don't have to become more godlike to keep up with this transformation. We can continue to be our messy, mundane, mediocre selves. And we are still the best candidates for the job God has for us. Because that job is to be humans transformed by Jesus Christ. Did you hear the word I said, though? I didn't, I didn't say caught up in just the label of Jesus Christ or just talk about Jesus Christ all day or defend Jesus Christ all day or point your neighbor to Jesus Christ all day. The task is to be humans transformed by Christ Jesus. And it is in our transformation that we become bearers of light in the world, bearers of good news. Transformed but not elevated above others. Hear that. Transformed but not better than. But not more holy than. 
is formed, but still humble. Vessels of God's grace. But as these vessels... We're not vessels that do not know the pain of brokenness. St. Paul says, but we have this treasure in clay jars so that it may be made clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and not to us. It does not come from us. We hold this treasure in clay jars, this grace, this ongoing invitation to co-create a new world, a better world. We hold this treasure in clay jars. And in this case, Mary was holding her treasure in a different kind of jar, a different kind of vessel, an earthly human vessel, her own womb. And she could have chosen the celebrity route. She had a good case to be a celeb, right? She could have taken a million selfies or the ancient version of selfies. I don't know what that would have been, but... She could have become even more obsessed with her own ego. She could have built a platform and gotten brand deals and made more money off of this whole mother of the Messiah gig. She could have elevated her own status in the temple and thought of herself as not just a Jewish girl, but a real fancy Jewish girl, okay? Mother of the Messiah, better than you, but really, could she have done any of that? We could imagine maybe so, but the reality is that God didn't decide to incarnate just anywhere or come to earth just anywhere, okay? And God had options, likely, okay? There were many options. But this strategic, intentional decision God came to dwell in the belly of a woman on the margins of society. Do you hear that? The Roman Empire was in control. Remember that. Even though as those who have inherited the Christian tradition, we think highly of Mary. But her society didn't think highly of her. The Roman Empire was in the process of counting for the census. And this census was used to count the number of able-bodied men who would serve as soldiers. And also to count the number of taxpayers. You know, really important logistical data for the Roman Empire. And so according to those metrics, Mary wasn't much to count. Her calling, you see, didn't add up too much by human terms. Her brown skin and lowly status and gender certainly didn't equate to religious or spiritual power. The script, right, didn't really add up for Mary. And yet, that baby kicked. It was the child inside Elizabeth's womb who recognizes the power of God. It was Elizabeth, an average woman with great faith, who recognizes the Son of God. 
sure later the Roman Empire would want to try on Christianity like a costume, forming it as the state religion in the Constantine era. But it started differently than that. And, of course, you know the rest. Christianity became more of an institution, and certainly God has been present in all of that. But how much of the humanity of the story was lost when that happened? When did the voices of men in power become more important than the shouts of Elizabeth or Elizabeths like her? When did the king's decree become more important than the kick of baby John inside her womb? And most importantly, when did the ongoing power of the empire become more important than the power of Jesus, our Messiah? What would it be like if we remembered a different story? The original story, the OG story. Without all the layers and the stuff that we've been conditioned to add on to the story, what if we took it back to the beginning? Back when God was disrupting all of that with unexpected presence, nearness, love, in the mundane and in the majestic. See, here's the good news. The good news is that God is still doing that today. God's still up to that. Did you know that? God's like still doing God's thing. <laughs> God is still among us, whispering to us, shouting to us. And if we look closely, if as Marcel asked us, if we can have open eyes what, oh my, what would we see if we opened our eyes to what God is up to in our midst? We might just see God in each other, glimmers of God in each other. We must see God in each other, and we must do this faith journey together. I am tired of a Christianity that tells me I must confess my sins alone and be saved individually. It's all up to me to determine my fate. If I just accept the good news, I'll go to heaven, I'll be okay. It's all on me, right? But what's the theme in that? Me. It's a lot of me. It's up to me. It all falls on me. And so if I choose the right way, oh, I've chosen the right path, good for me. And if I don't, I'm shamed forever. It's like being alone, and yet someone's telling you you're not alone. But you feel alone. You feel alone in the shame. Christianity has become so individualistic in its theology. And that theology spreads to the masses. It sells you an equation of faith, something to consume, an individual path that somehow creates mass popularity. But here, my friends, we can live out a different way, a different path to salvation. Because here's the good news. 
Oh my, gets me excited. We can be transformed as individuals and as a community. What? We don't have to do this faith thing alone. Because if we did, that would have meant that Mary would have just stayed at home, worked out her own salvation at home, no need to go share this good news with her friend and cousin and sister. But that's, that's not what faith calls us to do. It calls us to be in mysterious shared experiences together. So if you feel like you are failing at your individual faith journey, maybe you have some questions or really just all questions. Maybe you've deconstructed the faith that you inherited from your family. But my, my question for you is instead of stepping out of faith, like maybe everyone is telling you you are, what if you're really stepping into faith? The real kind of faith. The faith that happens in the midst of community. What if you, like Mary, have crossed over the threshold of the individualistic Right or wrong, black or white, heaven or hell, Christian or atheist? And what if you're stepping into a liminal space, you might call it? A space where there's relationship and trust and mystery and awe and wonder and love and transformation and the presence of God. Like Mary, she steps over that threshold. She goes from me to us when she goes to, visit Mary, goes to visit Elizabeth. And Mary didn't have all the answers, right? Like she wasn't a theological expert in Torah. She didn't constantly cite the Bible to silence the questions of others. <laughs> Can you imagine She's like at the marketplace square and others are gazing at her with doubt and whispering about her situation. Or they're really asking, how could this be possible? She didn't shout back at them with Isaiah 9-6. There shall be a child born among us to become the prince of peace. Because here's the thing, she had faith that God could be trusted with the business of God, the, the life of God. God could be trusted. She did not have to defend the word of God to everyone around her, which is what so many Christians have become fixated in doing. She did not have to defend the word of God because you see the word of God was coming alive in her. She only had to bear the word of God and yeah, that's a big job. That's a big task. But it's different than defending and being on the defense. It's letting, it's letting God come alive in you. She only had to bear the good news, believe it, not with every intellectual box checked, but with a willing heart. And a heart that was committed to 
creating a new world where this, this guy named Jesus could maybe change some things up for the better. And the biggest thing she did is she carried forth the good news to the next generation. It's after she gets this blessing from Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is like freaking out and like, oh, blessed is she who has believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Then Mary sings a song of praise. We often, if, if you're familiar with the Magnificat, the, the song of Mary, and if you're not, that's okay. I always want you to feel like it's okay to learn things here. None of us are experts, right? But Mary sings this song that our tradition has called the Magnificat. And it's a beautiful song, and I'm, I'm going to read it for you. But what I find so interesting is she's, she's just with her friend saying this, right? It's an intimate song of praise. And she's only ready to shout to God in joy after her sister in faith has blessed and affirmed her and she knows she's not alone. Do you see that? It's after her connection, after her conversation, after she hears the voice of Elizabeth affirm who she is. It's that faith in community thing, you know? It's then that she sings her solo. But the song of God is not a solo. It's not a solo. And maybe, maybe solos are fun to sing, Maybe we feel really in the spotlight when we sing a solo. But really, our, our faith happens with each other. That's where we're transformed. And so even though this is Mary's song of praise, she has an audience. She's, she's not alone in this. Here's what she says. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the, heart, in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Amen. May we have faith like Mary. May we welcome the child of God, our Savior. May we welcome him into our hearts and our lives, not as a concept to control, but as 
a savior, a friend to love and be transformed by. I wonder then what will happen. Amen.